So every healthy species, every species that, that lasts is a life enhancing species. It enhances the life of its ecosystem. What we know about us humans in uh, at least certainly in the last few hundred years is that we're not even life sustaining. We're life destroying. Everybody knows that now. We are destroying life at the rate of 200 species a day on this planet. And we're undermining and, and polluting every habitat on the planet. Okay, people know about that. We've lost our way as, as a species. So if we will embrace this idea that the soul is our unique ecological niche, then the soul is nature. It's our, it's our particular mm -hmm. nature. So when we go looking for our soul, once mystery initiates this journey of soul initiation for us, we are wandering deeper and deeper into the world, as Mary Oliver says, looking, searching for who we were born to be. And it's not something that can be defined in, in, by a social role or a vocation. Mm -hmm. That identity we're looking for, we're not going to find it in the human village. Mm. The best place to be hanging out is in as wild places as we can get to. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men, this way. What does it look like to live a truly authentic life? And not just the way some 22-year-old TikToker might tell you to live authentically, but I, I mean to live daily connected to your soul's deepest purpose for living. What does that kind of living look like? And perhaps more importantly, how do you fully step into living a soul-centric life? Well, in this episode, my guest Bill Plotkin and I mine these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. Now, seriously, listen up. This episode is like no other. Bill is one of the most genius and inspired visionaries that you've probably never heard of. He's the author of a few books that have been rocking my world the last few years, notably Nature and the Human Soul. And now his latest book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. And I'm serious when I say listen up. This may be the most important podcast episode I ever create. I love all my guests, and what particularly excites me about Bill Plotkin is that when I first read his book, Nature and the Human Soul, I felt like what the Israelites must have felt like when Moses came back from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Not that Bill has brought back commandments of any sort, but through his work spanning probably five decades now as a depth psychologist, wilderness guide, and founder of Western Colorado's Animas Valley Institute, where he's led uh, thousands of women and men through nature-based initiatory passages. What he has brought back is a map of human development that I believe to be as all-encompassing as any map modern-day humanity has discovered. 
building on Carl Jung's work and the work of countless other brilliant hearts and minds spanning a myriad of human cultures all over the world. When I read Bill's work, or I should say when I read Bill's work, I understand more clearly the adventure of my own life, the story arcs that have played out over years, the excruciating bottoms that I've hit at critical and pivotal moments of my life, and what the real tasks of the different stages of life are, that if I don't accomplish those tasks, then I don't truly grow or evolve, even though my body may age. In fact, this is one of the major themes throughout Bill's work, which I assure you is a master work. His books are just masterpieces of wisdom and insight and practical information. But a, a major theme he explores and that we talk about in this episode is the overwhelming lack of true adults in the modern world. The state of humanity is one currently made up of uh, largely of people stuck in adolescent ways of thinking, being, and doing. It's certainly not hard to make the case for that these days. Just read the news or scroll through your social media feed. You may not be able to quite put a finger on it, but something constantly nags at you that the world around you is largely devoid of real wisdom and nuance and maturity. Uh, Bill's, um, Bill's, Bill masterfully explains why this is, and at a depth far beyond politics and opinions and even philosophy. Bill's work is sourced from nature itself, and I mean that both poetically and literally. Look, I, I can't possibly articulate to you how important and thorough his work is. And today, he and I talk about perhaps the most critical phase of a life journey, the journey of soul initiation. Now, Bill might say all the phases of uh, a life journey are critical, that you can't grow beyond one stage until you successfully complete the tasks of that phase. Now, I actually don't know exactly what he'd say to that, and I don't ask him in this conversation, but the journey of soul initiation is, according to Bill's model of eco centric human development is the prerequisite for any human to step into true adulthood. And our modern culture does not support or even encourage anyone to undertake the journey to soul initiation, which is why, again, we are currently a society clearly being run or perhaps overrun by adolescents in adult bodies. And you might have noticed I just used the word ecocentric. Another distinction I love about Bill's work, which helped me make so much sense about why I for so long have been painfully suspicious, and I mean from my teenage days, that modern Western culture isn't really looking out for my deepest good. That the expectations on me, almost everyone in this society, to just get a job, be comfortable, make money, live for retirement, they just fail so miserably to support me truly thriving in life. That ego-centric society supports and encourages only the comfort and survival of the ego, which is never fulfilled because the ego always wants more. But anyway, I can't go down that rabbit hole here. I have too much to talk about with the brilliant and wise Bill Plotkin. I encourage you to listen to this entire episode. I encourage you to get Bill's books if you have any interest in human development, in growing yourself as a healthy, soul-connected adult, and especially if you have or want kids, 
Bill's work can help you understand what your own children need to experience at different stages of development if they are to become truly healthy adults. Bill's work is profound, and we're only going to take a short stroll on the tippy top of the massive iceberg that is his life's work. Near the end, just before I ask him for one key takeaway, one key practice that you can do every day to move further in the direction of your own journey of soul initiation, I ask Bill whether he has hope for humanity, given our collective resistance to creating mature adults. And his answer will surprise you, maybe frighten you. He does have hope, but not in the way you might think. So definitely stay tuned all the way through to the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Mr. Bill Plotkin, sir, it is an absolute honor to have you on Men This Way. Thank you for being here. Thanks for the invitation, Brian. Great to be with you and all your listeners. Yeah, I've I've been absolutely enraptured by your work uh, for about the last year now, and um, it was introduced to me by a group of men who, uh, likewise, a men's group that I'm in of of, of uh, just you know beautiful heart centered men in the doing the personal growth work, whatever that means. Uh, and your book has really lit a fire in us. Uh, when I say your book, I'm talking about nature and the human soul. And I know today we're going to be talking about uh, the journey of soul initiation. Your new book. Thank you. When I when I say it is an honor, and I'm excited, and I I I, I mean that full on. Uh, may I ask you, where are you in the world right now? You look like you're in a cozy cabin somewhere. Um, I am in a, a cozy house. It's my home. It's on the edge of the Animas Valley in southwest Colorado. I'm at 7,300 feet, and I'm looking right over the top of your head right now to the La Plata Mountains, which um, go up to 13,000 feet, and then some, um, right outside my window. So I'm about mm, five or six miles from the town of Durango. Uh, Sounds lovely. I've been to Durango. I went skiing there, snowboarding once. Actually, I wouldn't call it snowboarding. I would call it more like uh, falling down a hill for a day (laughs) um, with a board attached to my feet. (laughs) Literally doing snow angels all day because I couldn't figure it out. Uh, Well, I'm very envious. Um, I'm looking over the valley of the San Fernando, just uh, north of LA, and and my, my, my heart and soul are just dying longing for for more nature mm. uh, connection which again your you know your book again I come back to nature and the human soul because I'm more intimately familiar with that but you really w- gave me an understanding it, it, look we're gonna dive into all of that but before before we do you know Bill normally in in my conversations with with guests I like to start with a story from your life sure but here's the thing this this is going to be a very different conversation than most because of your work because of 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 how uh, because of I think the 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 service that you offer through your work and so I'm going to change it up a little bit here and it seems a little odd even to me but I'm actually going to start with a short story from my life if that's okay sure if you indulge me that I think it will serve our conversation set a foundation for what we're going to talk today about this this journey of soul initiation so briefly briefly. When I was 26 years old, I'm 46 now. When I was 26, I was just getting out of the military. Ten years spent in uh, military service, five years training in college, and five years active duty as an officer. 
And when I separated from the military at 26, Bill, I was absolutely, utterly miserable. I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't feel my body. I couldn't feel joy. I couldn't even feel sadness. I felt so disconnected from my life. I felt so disconnected from life. I was angry at God. Like I just was in a, in a state. And when a lot of my contemporaries were getting out of the military and going right to work for a defense contractor to make you know three times what they were being paid by the government, that to me just seemed like a living death. And it was such a clear no for me that it wasn't even a decision to to say no. It just was it was just wasn't even an option for me. So I grabbed a backpack and went traveling. And I, I don't know, I'm 26. This is before the days of YouTube and Facebook and uh, social media. You know, there was no video blogging my my travels. There was just traveling. And email was even in, in its infancy. And I remember the night before I left, I, I went to stay at my mom's home uh, in my transition from being in the military to actually traveling, just wandering. I remember telling my mom, mom, you know, the day before I left, I said, you know, mom, I may never, ever come home. And I had no idea what I was talking about at the time, but I knew that I something drastic needed to change. I knew that I needed, and I had no idea what, Bill, no idea, but I just knew that I needed to travel. And uh, so I, I took a military flight over to uh, England, um, and then I just started backpacking. And, and a month later, I backpacked through Wales and some of Ireland and a bunch of England. But a month later, I had what I, the, word, the language I, I use, because I didn't have any other language for it, was I had a nervous breakdown in a phone booth in Wales 30, 30 days later. Mm. So I had no idea who I was. I was utterly as much as I had wanted the military out of my body and off my skin, I remember the first thing that I would do whenever someone asked me about me is, who are you? I'd say, oh, I was a military captain. I was a foreign. I would go right back to that identity. Mm -hmm. yep. I know now that was just the beginning of what I believe was maybe a first encounter with the journey of soul initiation. You know, that was 20 years ago. So... That, that's the story that I wanted to share to kind of set up our, our conversation around your new book and your work, um, The Journey of Soul Initiation. So, uh, Bill, for our, again, our, our listeners that may, you know, that, I think that language conjures something, but I think for a lot of us, yes. we have no idea what it actually means. What does it mean? What is the journey of soul initiation for, for our listeners that may be new to this concept, this idea? Yeah, okay. Um, you know, it's actually not, despite having worked with this for 40 years and um, recently finished writing a book on it, it's not that easy to explain to people what it is because what it is is not on the map of the contemporary Western world at all. It's not, it's completely missing it. We are Western civilization lost it some thousands of years ago, as most contemporary cultures actually have. So um, just uh, asking you and uh, especially your listeners to, to bear with me here as I attempt to describe this thing that's almost entirely missing. Um, the way I use the term journey of soul initiation, I'm talking about 
an initiatory journey of several years as a minimum mm. that um, corresponds to entire stage of life that the vast majority of contemporary people in, in industrialized societies never reach. Mm. They never even reach the stage in which the journey of soul initiation takes place. By the way, I'm using that term, especially in this book, but one could say the journey of soul initiation starts at birth or even conception, if you had a bigger frame. Um, or one could say it starts when a person has the kind of experience you had in a phone booth in Wales. But actually, the way I use the phrase journey of soul initiation in the book, that what happened for you in Wales was not the start of the journey in the more technical sense of, um, um, let me back up and say, okay, um, as you know, Brian, I've, um, over the last 40 years, I've been developing a new way, new Western way to understand the stages of life. Yeah, yes. And in particular, to understand them as through the lens of nature, or you could say through the lens of soul. Yeah. And this, and there's eight stages in this map. I call it the soul-centric developmental wheel. It's described in my book, Nature and the Human Soul. And there's eight stages of life in this wheel. That, and these are the stages as I believe we humans evolved to go through. But in the contemporary world, very few people get past the third stage, yeah. get stuck in the third one. And the, the first two stages are stages of childhood, and the next two are, are adolescence. There's these two stages of adolescence, and they're so different, you can almost say they're completely different. And this is even before true adulthood happens. And in our world, there's very few true adults and elders. But the first stage of adolescence, of course, we can simply call early adolescence. And that's the stage most contemporary people past puberty, get stuck in for the rest of their lives. And one of the reasons, there's so much I could say about that, but just a real shorthand, one of the, maybe the primary reason we get stuck in early adolescence is because one of the developmental tasks of that stage is to develop a personal presence in the world, a social role, vocational role, and so on, that is authentic. Yeah. It's it, it, that you get the feeling like, okay, this is really who I am. This way, my way of being in relationship socially and sexually and vocationally and religiously and so on, it's really resonant with who I really am on the personality level. Because yeah. in early adolescence, we have to create our own personality in a certain sense that is that develops from the foundation we learn from our parents and religious and ethnic background and so on, but but it's but we've got to come up with our own version. And so there's so I'm, many I'm really people. struck, if I may just really emphasize what you're saying, because I'm really sh I'm really noticing and struck right now about there's this the there's a collective almost zeitgeist happening around this word authenticity. Yes. This there's especially in more pop culture, the authentic, you know, it's, it's like everyone wants to talk about how to be authentic and it's it's almost as if and I this may be a question we dive into a little bit later. It's as if like humanity at large is sort of moving through an adolescent stage of development still, and we're just just touching on what does authenticity mean collectively. Yes, um, I would modify from my own perspective one thing you just said, <clears throat> and that is it's not humanity 
that is stuck in an adolescent stage. It's um, certainly the Western world, but really any of the <clears throat> industrialized um, worlds that uh, are societies that Rianne Eisler, who wrote Chalice and the Blade, referred to as dominator societies. Um, I would say egocentric. And I have another phrase, which is not a very friendly one, but it's patho-adolescent, pathologically adolescent. And so I believe um, humanity is continuing to evolve, but over the last few thousand years, there's, uh, there's been the most dominant societies have gotten stuck in a, a kind of uh, unhealthy adolescence. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so um, purpose and authenticity, these are really big words now because we're, so many people are recognizing that I haven't been supported by my society, by my people, by my village, by my world to find out who I really am. And almost everybody is meeting that in what I would call the early adolescent sense of who am I socially, vocationally, uh, and so on. And so it's not at all uncommon. I mean, in fact, it's, but it's extremely common for people in the contemporary world to have that experience you had of, I have no idea who I am. I have been trained to be someone who, I've been trained to be someone to take on a certain persona, a certain mask. And, and we men know that that's particularly true um, in a certain way for us men. We're supposed to, we, we get these messages about what it is to be a man when we're a um, child. And those images of men are actually extremely juvenile compared to what you'd have in healthy cultures. But one thing that's, somewhat unusual about your story, Brian, is that you recognized it. You realized, I really don't know, have any idea who I am. And so then you started on a journey of discovering who you are. And the, the first phase, you might say, of a journey like that is discovering who I am on a personality or a social level. Like, what are my true values? Yeah. What are my real interests? What is my way of expressing my sexuality? What's my true gender orientation? Yeah. What what do I what brings me alive? What kinds of social circles or jobs or creative projects really bring me alive? And one last point here, and um, is that those questions and that process has to happen before the journey, what I call the journey of soul initiation, begins. You know. I'm I'm fascinated. Just so many things, and this is this has happened to me as I've read as I've read your work. Uh, my just light bulbs lighting up, clarity around past experiences. You know, for example, even what you just said now. When I was in the military, before I left and had that that moment of just utter terror in that phone booth. <laughs> I mean. It was, it was the fr I'd never cried so much in my life, full body cry. I was so alone and so yeah. not, but even before that, like in the military, I remember I spent about, I spent about four months wondering if I could be gay, for example, sort of just doing these thought experiments, mm -hmm. you know, in the military, it was illegal to be homosexual at that time. Yes. But I just remember wondering, wow, I mean, look, there's some, there's, I can appreciate, you know, a man's beauty. It's like, but does that mean I'm gay? And I remember spending a good four months really mm -hmm. going there in my mind. And, oh, it was so refreshing to just not, not that I wasn't gay, but to just have clarity around what my real attractions, I don't know, real, but what, what I, what was true for me and what wasn't. It was so refreshing. 
know, I've had a lot of, uh, I've been very close with, with gay men uh, since that experience. And I, I really believe that four months of just going there in my mind helped me f- get to a place where I can be, you know, be- have beautiful friendships with gay men, for example, mm-hmm. without yeah. any fear or, you know, concern or any of the stuff that often comes up, I think, for, for generally, typically straight men. So anyway, that's just li- another light bulb going off there. Yes. Something else that you said that the, the journey of soul initiation also is, it's not something that you can go do in a weekend workshop or even in a, a week in the woods. It's a years long journey. It is. Yes. That's, that's something that I think is really interesting. I almost wonder if it's been a, you know, I'm 20 years since that moment in the phone booth. And I feel like there have been these multiple layers and moments of sort of, again, these, these, these crises moments where, oh my God, I've hit a bottom, it feels like. But again, Bill, I had no guides for this. Yes. I mean, talk about that. I mean, how the heck are we supposed to find our way when, you know, you say something about, you said it in this conversation and you said it in your new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation. I've long been lamenting as I've woken up to the reality, the realization that there are no, there are very few elders, wise elders. I don't certainly look up and see any above me, not in my immediate circle or... And yet you said something that was, wow, it was so simple and yet so mind-blowing. It's because there are, there are very few true adults. Exactly. Can you yeah. talk more about that? Yeah, because what makes a true adult is going through the journey of soul initiation. Mm-hmm. That's, what it, that's one way to understand what the journey is. Yeah. Another way to say this is contrast it with what happens in early adolescence. Because the, the journey of soul initiation happens in what I call late adolescence, has nothing to do with chronological years. <clears throat> These are psychological stages. And um, <clears throat> so the contrast is um, in early adolescence, which I call the oasis, a person is um, shaping their personal presence so that it works in society, so that they find, they create one or more versions of themselves that are socially acceptable to a peer group. But these versions have to be authentic if you're going to get through that stage. So there's a combination of authenticity and social acceptance that are equally important in this psychological stage of early adolescence. My main point just there is um, we're shaping ourselves to have to be both authentic and socially successful. Mm-hmm. Okay, in late adolescence, it's very, very different. Mm-hmm. We're not shaping ourselves at all. We are submitting ourselves to an initiatory journey where we get shaped. And we get shaped by, you could say, mystery or soul. Mm-hmm. Must be two good ways to say it. And we're being shaped not for social success per se, but to, create, to reshape our egos, our conscious self, so that we become adequate, competent agents for mystery, which is to say for soul. Yeah. And so that's the job of late adolescence, is to create a second um, personal presence where how you fit into society is way secondary. And the real question is, what does soul, what is mystery, what does essentially nature want from me? Yeah. Another way to say that is, who was I born as? What, the indigenous people often would say, um, we're each born with original instructions. We're born to take a particular place, not so much in society, 
but in the larger earth community. And so the journey of soul initiation is the journey that allows us to first discover what the place in the ecological world, the earth community, the web of life that we were born to take, um, and then be shape-shifted, our egos be shape-shifted by that experience so that we actually can be a competent vehicle for that, that nature-based mystery. That's a very different thing. And just let me give you one analogy, which I think will help your listeners. And it comes from the life cycle of caterpillars, whether they be butterfly or moth caterpillars. The caterpillar stage corresponds to what in for us humans is early adolescence. And caterpillars go through profound changes if they're healthy caterpillars. And those changes are called moltings by biologists. And a molting is when a caterpillar sheds its skin and then grows another somewhat larger one. And depending on the species, this happens four, five, six, seven times for a caterpillar. These profound changes. Mm. And you could say they're changes in identity for the caterpillar. But before that change, they're a caterpillar. And after that change, they're, they're a caterpillar. Well, for, for humans, we also go through something that corresponds to moltings in early adolescence. So, for example, we have a certain social scene and there's a certain persona or haircut, a way of expressing our sexuality we have. And then there's some profound experience we have and we realize that's not really who I am. That doesn't express who I am as fully as I could. And so we might change our social scene. We might change our primary romantic relationship. We might move from Ohio to California. Um, we might take a different job. Because I'm not just talking about teenagers because, again, most contemporary humans yeah. are in early adolescence at least through their 20s and often through their 80s or 100s yeah. and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, but back to the caterpillar. At some point, the caterpillar has molted as many times as it either can or needs to. And then there's this mysterious thing that happens that it finds itself, if it's a moth caterpillar, weaving a cocoon. Who knows if the caterpillar even knows why? Or if it's a butterfly caterpillar, it, its own body starts turning into something like a cocoon, which of course is called a chrysalis. Mm -hmm. And what's going to happen in that chrysalis or cocoon is this former caterpillar is going to be morphed into a butterfly. It's a caterpillar before the transformation and it's not after, it's a butterfly. That's analogously is what happens for us humans during the journey of soul initiation, which may be only 10% of temporary people at the most ever even start, yeah. that we are going to become this different kind of being, like as different as a butterfly is to a caterpillar. That's well, the journey. I, I love what you said too at the beginning. We don't, does, the, does the caterpillar even know why? it begins to undergo this process. Does the caterpillar, that's such a rich observation or, or inquiry because I, I, same way, when I go back to my military, that moment of leaving the military, I knew without a doubt, there was no question I had to go. Yeah. Not for a second. I remember getting an offer from uh, Lockheed Martin, the big boss at Lockheed Martin, you know, he with a little wink and a nod, Brian, if you need a job, I got you. Mm. Not even for half a second did I consider saying yes to that, Bill. But I had no idea where I was going otherwise. None. I had no idea what pain was coming from me. Yeah. No idea what loneliness, 
was awaiting me. You know, what do you say to, let's just say again, for the, because of this audience, for this podcast, to a man or, or a woman for that matter, but what, mm-hmm. what do you say to someone who starts to, is starting to see themselves? They've lived a life. They've, you know, had accomplishments. I mean, a lot of my listeners, I, I see this a lot, Bill, where, where men especially start to hit the walls of their adolescent way of being in their late 30s, early 40s. Now, a lot of men will push through that moment and, you know, as you said, they'll make it all the way to their 80s and their death without ever doing anything different. But I'm seeing more and more men, late 30s, early 40s, start to go, okay, I need to do something. Something ain't working. Something's off. Whether they've, they've made the money, they've got the house, they've got the, the, the family, they've got all the things, or maybe they don't have those things, but still, what do you say to that man who, if they're listening to this, thinking, wow, okay, I've never, I've never really given myself to that mystery, taken that leap. Like they're, they're starting to hear a whisper of, of a longing, of a call, of a, man, I, I, I want that for myself. Because it's crazy. I, as much as I would never have designed that breakdown in the phone booth, I'm so grateful it happened. Mm-hmm. Yes. I needed that to happen. And, and, and more so beyond that, the multiple moltings as you, <laughs> as you elucidated. So what, what do you say to that person that's starting to, to feel that, hear that? But they're but they're in their old you know kind of in that adolescent stage still. Yeah, still the caterpillar. We start by saying this is you're not crazy. This is a very common experience. Not everybody has it, but the more fortunate ones have it. Just like you in the phone booth, Brian. It's a fortunate thing, as painful as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we might describe um, moltings, and and in each molting. Early adolescent molting helps us become more authentic socially and vocationally. And a very large percentage of the people who come to us at Animus Valley Institute, that's the sort of thing they're experiencing, and that's what they're saying. And so in addition to how I just started with, you know, you're not crazy, we also say we've been developing now for 40 years uh, practices that actually you can find in the Western world, but we put together a package that as far as we can tell, covers all the bases. And so we have practices and programs, experiences that will help you develop your fundamental, what we call facets of wholeness that you were born with, because every human is born with these same uh, capacities um, that we need to cultivate in order to become fully human. And cultivating these four facets of wholeness is one of the most important things and effective things to do to prepare you for the journey of soul initiation, which won't start when you decide you want it. It'll start when mystery mm. lets you know that you're ready. And I could explain, you know, the kinds of things people experience when they're, that the, these signs that someone's ready for the journey of soul initiation. But to get back to where most people are at when they come to us, we help them do this work we call holing, which is short for cultivating the four facets of human wholeness. And these four facets, all four of them are neglected Mm. by contemporary educational systems, our religious systems, Mm. and most any form of parenting, except maybe some of the most progressive forms that we don't even understand as a society anymore what it is to be a whole human. 
uh, including a whole man and whole women, somewhat different uh, versions there, but there's, there's more similarities and differences actually in our human wholeness. So I'll just name these four facets and people will get a sense Please. of them. Yeah. Um, and we've, we've mapped these onto nature's template. That's how we're confident we've got the whole picture because we've used nature's templates, which are by definition wholeness. And the three templates we've used for this are the four seasons, mm -hmm. the four times of day, namely sunrise, noon, sunset, midnight, and the four cardinal directions. What do we experience on the north sides of things, south sides of things, and so on, um, which is opposite depending on which hemisphere of the earth we live on. Um, but the same symbols are there. Uh, okay, so um, in the north of our psyches, we have what I call the nurturing generative adult. This is, and this is our capacity for healing others, ourselves, for being a leader, um, director, producer of things, um, so forth. Okay, and the east is what we call the innocent and the sage. Hmm. It's both. It's both innocence and wisdom. Yeah. Uh, and being able to see the big picture and being fully able to be present in the moment. And in the south is the facet of wholeness we call the wild indigenous one because all humans are indigenous to earth, even if we've lost, our culture has lost its indigenosity to a, indigeneity to a particular place. But the wild indigenous one of us is fully at home in our bodies, loves our bodies, takes care of our bodies, loves every single emotion, knows there is no such thing as a toxic emotion. They're all gifts from this perspective and uh, feels our natural kinship with all the forms of life. Yeah. That's really very brief. And then in the West um, is perhaps the most mysterious uh, facets of wholeness to contemporary people in the Western world. And that's what we call the dark muse beloved. This is the inner beloved, the, uh, the part of ourselves that we, the ego wants to merge with and that we um, tend to project onto potential romantic or actual romantic partners. Mm -hmm. we're, we're projecting this West part of ourselves, which holds um, the pieces of us that if we're masculine centered in our psyche, then these would be the more feminine and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, but that's only one way to look at it. And, and the, we say it's, it's the dark muse, beloved, dark because this part of ourselves loves the unknown. This is the part of us that wants to wander into the unknown as, as you did yeah. um, at 26. Um, and this is the part that is very conversant with dreams and the deep imagination and so on. Okay, so these four facets of wholeness, what we find is when people first come to us, they've had very little cultivation of any of these four, but especially suppressed are the South and the West because the contemporary patriarchal world sees those two as feminine. And so underdeveloped men in power over the last millennia, several millennia have said, that's not me, that must be women. And so they didn't develop their own, um, their own South and West facets, their own yeah. capacity for emotions and for imagination. Okay, so I'm answering, trying to answer your question. What do we say to men who come to us and say, you know, I'm in my late 30s or early 40s, and I've got a successful life in many ways, but I know it's not me. I know there's more. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and in my mind, I'll say this is probably a man, could be a woman, of course, but I think you asked about men. Mm -hmm. It's, it's uh, I'll just say it's a person who's probably only gone through, maybe have not, has not even gone through a single molting yet. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've gone through two or three maltings, but there's still a ways from creating a, a truly authentic self in a social and vocational sense that really brings them alive and says, yes, this is me. And so we help those men and women get to that uh, yes and go through that next molting through helping them cultivate their facets of wholeness and also helping them address the developmental tasks from childhood mm. that they were least um, completed. And that's true for most every Western person. There's major developmental work that's meant to happen in childhood that doesn't get done. Yeah. The good news here, Brian, is that if you, with that, that kind of map we've developed at Animus, it's pretty easy to help a person in this situation identify what their unfinished business is from, the, from childhood and which facets of wholeness most need developing. Yeah. And they can get through that work relatively quickly and maybe a matter of a few months or a year, something like that. And then what mystery will do, will say, essentially, it's as if mystery says, congratulations, you've created an authentic and socially acceptable self. And now forget about all that. Cause now that <laughs> now this initiatory journey is going right. to start and it's going to be way more intense than anything you've experienced so far. Interesting. Bill, I'm just so touched by the depth of you, what you have been elucidating through your books, even in this conversation. I know we are just so skimming the surface, Still, and yeah. uh, I am going to implore my audience to uh, read your your books. I want to ask you about nature, because I one of the things that really, again, impre you impressed upon me uh, that, that there are, each developmental stage has two tasks, a culture task and a nature task, essentially, you know. Um, and, I, you know, my, my, my wife is a, uh, she's in the therapist community. Mm -hmm. And we've, she's fascinated by your model, the, the, the soul centric wheel of development. And, you know, we've held it up alongside a certain therapeutic models of de of life development. And my observation, it's a very, you know, it's a non-educated one, but my observation is that in the therapeutic models I've seen, it's very culture-oriented, culture yes. task, a yeah. lot of culture in the, in the, in the therapeutic models. Yeah. Nature seems to be, by and large, missing. Yes. And... You know, I look at, I mean, look, we're culturally, we're, 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 we've, we're losing our contact with nature if we haven't met, so many of us lost it already. I mean, I, you know, few of us know where our food really comes from, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, we rarely spend time wandering in the woods, you know, we're raising forests for raising with a Z, not, not grazing as in growing, we're raised, destroying them for palm plantations and commercial development and I mean, look at what's happening with coronavirus. We have no relationship to it whatsoever. We're just either terror or dismissal. There's just no relationship to 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 natural things. I'm speaking obviously, you know, hyperbolic here, but what what happens? Well, let me ask you this: What is the role of nature in the journey of soul initiation? Why is that? You know, nature, a forest, a mountain, uh, you know, you're looking out over these beautiful plains where you live, where the animus institute, where you do a lot of your work and your, and your quests. Why is nature so essential 
for our, our, our soul initiation, our journey to soul initiation? Because we are nature. We humans are, have emerged from the natural world like everything else. We are the human version of nature. And um, I've already implied what I mean by soul here with you, Brian, mm -hmm. but I'm going to give an explicit definition which will help me answer your question. It's a simple definition, but it's unlike anything you'll find in spirituality, religion, or psychology. Um, and I could go on for quite a while about why I felt it was necessary to do this, but let me just define, it's an ecological concept. It's not a psychological one. Or a metaphysical one. Or a metaphysical one, exactly. Yeah. Or religious, yeah. yeah. Um, and when we try to use the word soul in those other domains, psychology, metaphysics, and so on, we get confusion, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it finally dawned on me, maybe just 15 or 20 years ago, that it's really an ecological concept. And so I define soul as a thing's unique ecological niche. A niche, of course, is an ecological concept. And the idea is that everything, every species has its unique niche. That's something any ecologist, any high school ecology, biology student could tell you. We all know that. Every species has its unique niche. But traditional cultures will go a step further and say every individual of every species has its unique niche mm. within that realm. So just consider the possibility, I know it's a wild idea, that we humans are not different than everything else on this planet in that way, at least in that way, that we too are born, well, we as a species, we've evolved to take a particular place in life. And what we know from ecology is that every species, except possibly us, um, it succeeds, exists, exists because it has found a way to gift the rest of life. So every healthy species, every species that, that lasts is a life enhancing species. It enhances the life of its ecosystem. What we know about us humans in uh, at least certainly in the last few hundred years is that we're not even life sustaining. We're life destroying. Everybody knows that now. We are destroying life at the rate of 200 species a day on this planet. And we're undermining and, and polluting every habitat on the planet. Okay, people know about that. We've lost our way as, as a species. So, okay, so if the soul, if we will embrace this idea that the soul is our unique ecological niche, then the soul is nature. It's our, it's our particular mm -hmm. nature. So when we go looking for a soul, once mystery initiates this journey of soul initiation for us, we are wandering deeper and deeper into the world, as Mary Oliver says, looking, searching for who we were born to be. And it's not something that can be defined in, in, by a social role or a vocation. Mm -hmm. And so that identity we're looking for, we're not going to find it in the human village. Mm -hmm. The best place to be hanging out is in as wild places as we can get to. And by the way, it's not necessary that people can go through the journey of soul initiation and never leave the city. That's entirely possible. But it'll probably go quicker and deeper if we can have some time uh, in wild places. Mm -hmm. So I hope I've done it. I've at least started to answer your question. Why is 
the other than human world, that aspect of nature, because it's all nature. Why is that so important during the initiatory journey? Well, it, well, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm, I just even look at the only way I could even ask that question is from the mindset of we are separate from nature. Exactly. I mean, that's where they're like, oh, if, 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 I, if I'm not believing that, I couldn't even ask that question. Why is exactly. nature important? <laughs> it's exactly. Kind of, it's so fascinating just looking at my own thinking and where that question comes from. Yeah, just real quickly here. Yeah. Um, we, I've been told by many um, experts that nature-based, what we would call nature-based cultures, which is, say, indigenous traditions, they don't have a word for nature. Wow. Because yeah. if you tried to explain, if we tried to explain to them what we mean by it, they'd say... <laughs> <laughs> well, in contrast to what? Right. What, what does this word nature contrast with? It's funny. It's funny and, tra- and tragic all the same. Yeah. You know, when I, after that moment in the phone booth uh, in Wales, that was, as you have said, that was just the beginning of a years long journey of, of meandering and wandering and getting destroyed even more in other ways. And, but I, I remember I, I, one of my, the great solaces I had on that journey when I was just backpacking was being alone in the Swiss Alps, uh, hiking. It was uh, shortly after 9-11, so there weren't a lot of travelers. There wasn't a lot of tourism going on, 9-11 in 2001. And, and uh, I took great solace. I had to leave the city. In my case, I had. I remember I'd seen, I'd been to... Uh, I did a tour of cities. I went to Amsterdam and then uh, like Köln in Germany and 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 uh, Berlin, then Prague, then uh, Krakow. Like I was just city after city after city. And then I went to Vienna. Like this was all within about a two month, you know, space of six eight weeks. I went to Vienna. I was like, it's the most beautiful city. I'm full. I can't. I feel so lonely here. I feel so. This is not. And then I went into the countryside and my whole nervous system relaxed. And, you know, that's been a theme that I returned to many, many times over the years. Going to, that's so sad. It makes me sad to say it, going to nature because I'm, this is one of, you know, I'm in the midst of another crisis here, Bill, I'll share with you. Living in Los Angeles, I'm really struggling to feel connected to the land here. Um, and and you know in this sprawling concrete and so you know I'm I'm looking to create a lot of more nature connecting experiences in my life now and 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 I'm excited to bring other men into those experiences as well. Mm-hmm. So again, I guess I, I just share that because again, just you know, light bulbs, so many light bulbs. You're 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 elucidating a map that I've yeah. in many ways I've been walking with no guide, with no clarity as to what the heck's going on. And I think that's why reading your work has been so deeply, deeply touching for me and, and affirming and exciting. Because it's not only a map that says, oh, that's where I was. There's a map that says, oh, here's where I'm going. And also in, in my role with the work that I do, I'm also getting clarity around what I can really be of service to others as they're traversing their own, you know, developmental stage journey. Mm-hmm. One thing that another thing, one thing, so many things. Another thing, uh, Bill, you identify very early in in I think all of your books, but certainly the journey of soul initiation is is you you speak of death 
and your early awakening or awareness that you were in a in a sense like an agent of death or an apprentice to death mm-hmm. I think that's something that men especially are particularly fascinated by. And again, I hate to make generalizations like that, but again, this is a podcast of wisdom conversations amongst men. So, you know, we'll, we'll hang out here for a moment just for fun. Why not? Okay. <laughs> and, but I, I do find men especially, death is very enlivening. You know, the presence of it. And you write about this a lot, the presence of it. The, the consciousness of death is what helps, can help en- engender us to giving our greatest gifts. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that? Again, in this, in the, in the realm of, in the frame of the journey of soul initiation, what does death have to do with it? Well, we have to go through a psycho, psycho spiritual form of, of dying during the, the journey of soul initiation. Death becomes an advisor. And that's something that Castaneda said many decades ago. Now, Car- Carlos, Carlos, yeah, okay. his teachers reminded him that um, we must take on death as an advisor. Mm. And uh, death be- is a valuable advisor even in early adolescence. But in late adolescence, the cocoon stage, which is when the journey of soul initiation takes place, uh, death is a particularly important advisor. And so we ask regularly, what's important now in my life, given my mortality? Just like if we think again about the caterpillar, when it enters the, when it's creating its cocoon or cr- turning itself into a chrysalis, that's like the preparation phase for um, a particular spiritual adventure that I call the descent to soul. And actually, my new book, that's what it's primarily about yeah. the descent to soul, which is one particular spiritual adventure that lasts anywhere from a few weeks to a year or more that has to happen at least once. For the journey of soul initiation, that larger journey to be complete, and it can happen more than more than once during the journey, and it can happen after the journey as well. Mm-hmm. So the descent to soul is a is a spiritual adventure in which we have, if it goes well, a glimpse of our soul, which is to say, of our unique ecological niche we were born to take, our original instructions, and it's a vision or a revel or a revelation of that place, not our social or vocational place, but our ecological place. The descent to soul, um, we've mapped it as having five phases. And by the way, it's not a rite of passage, so it doesn't have those three phases. And it's not a hero's journey, as Joseph Campbell spoke about, Mm. something very different. So it's not Campbell's Mm -hmm. three phases. This is Mm. something different. Mm. Again, it's so far off the maps of the Western world, Joseph Campbell didn't even know about this. The five phases, you know, the preparation phase is the first one. And for a caterpillar, it's creating its cocoon or turning into a chrysalis. It's preparing the stage, the setting for this transformation that's going to happen. And for us humans, the preparation has a lot to do with the things I've already spoken here today about. The cultivating the four facets of wholeness and addressing unfinished developmental business from earlier stages, including that nature-oriented task of um, middle childhood, which is learning the enchantment of the natural world. So many people need to do that one to, to, to come to experience themselves fully at home in the natural world. And um, not much can happen till, with the journey yeah. until that's happened. Okay, so talking about the five phases of the descent to soul, the second phase, this is answering your question, believe it or not, yeah. about death. 
The second phase is called dissolution. For the caterpillar, that's after its cocoon is complete. It's now in the cocoon or the chrysalis. And guess what? Its body, its caterpillar body, literally dissolves into soup. Okay, take that yeah. in for a moment. Yeah. Yeah. And the analogy here with us humans, during the descent to soul, this particular spiritual adventure that's necessary for soul initiation, it's not our bodies that dissolve, it's our egos, it's our identity. Yeah. It's, it's our understanding of who we are. It's gone. Yeah. We just don't even believe in it anymore. And that's a kind of dying. If I may relate that to yes. being in that being in that phone booth in Wales, I felt like soup. Yeah. I felt like, <laughs> I, and, and here's what's interesting, Bill. I knew I couldn't go back. I knew I couldn't go home. I didn't know where home was. Like there was no back to go to. My body, even physiologically, my body just broke open. The sobs, the tears, the snot coming out of my nose, the, the mm -hmm. whole heaving of my body. You know, I had in the, in the month before, I hadn't been treated well by people. I looked like a wandering vagabond through mm -hmm. Western Europe. And, and I remember I wasn't being treated like a U.S. military officer should be treated in my mind. <laughs> Like, again, identity, who am I? I uh, it was, and I remember, though, after that moment, I spent three of the sweetest days at a hostel just going nowhere, just sitting, looking out. It was, uh, I think it was, um, what time of year? That would have been uh, like February in Wales, February. Mm. And it was beautiful outside. It was mm. moody and gloomy. And I felt like a cocoon. I felt like I was in... I was just, again, I, it's not the same thing because it was just the beginning of such a long journey. But I, you know, again, what you're saying, ter it was ter I was terrified. Yeah. That was dying. Would be, yes. Um, so again, um, Brian, obviously, we just met today and so I don't really know your story in any yeah, depth, yeah. although you're telling us some beautiful strands of your story. So it could be that what was happening for you was the dissolution phase of a descent to soul. That's possible. Possible, yeah. But it's also possible it was the shedding of a skin right? when you, a skin that you had been wearing for 10 or 12 years or yeah. more, that er, an early adolescent skin. Because yeah. when people are going through a profound molting, which is something that happens in early, this psychological stage of early adolescence, and they hear me or someone like me talk about the descent to soul, they say, yes. That's what happened to me. <laughs> and it uh, could be, no, yeah. that was actually a molting. Yeah, yeah. Because there's similar patterns sure. and similar language that's used. So I just want um, our listeners to know this, these are moltings and cocoon experiences are really, really different things. Although yeah. they both have something you could call a dying. Like when you shed a skin, that's like, that skin is dying. Well, I think this is such an important distinction, Bill, because... You know, we look into the world of, of, of transformational, like, you know, work, all the workshops, all the things that are out there. And again, you speak to this. I mean, everything from therapy to Tony Robbins to uh, and everything in between, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of, of heavy processing work that people are doing. It's not the same as a descent to soul. It isn't at all. Another way to make the distinction is that much of the really profound, intense, personal change work that's being done is a kind of healing or a kind of therapy. 
And it's absolutely essential to do some of that work. But here's the contrast. The cocoon is not a healing experience. It's not therapy. It's counter-therapeutic. Mm. It's, it's very much yeah. the opposite. Yeah. That um, if, if there's a big piece of healing work that is needed to be done, and you happen to be in the cocoon, then you would not want to start the descent, a descent to soul. It, it was almost guaranteed to be unsuccessful or extremely yeah. dangerous. Yeah. So that's one another way to make the distinction between early and late adolescence. Early adolescence, especially contemporary people, could really use a lot of therapeutic healing work. Mm. It's not that we're ever done with a healing, never, no matter what stage we get to. Mm -hmm. But the descent to soul, I just can't emphasize too much. It is not therapeutic. It's counter-therapeutic in the sense that it will destroy your adaptation to your social world completely. Mm. And any psychotherapist anywhere will tell you the single most important element of what is unfortunately called mental health, because it's so more, much bigger than mental, but the single most important component of mental health for humans in general, which really means, in my perspective, for people in early adolescence, is social connection. Is, is social belonging. And if you have someone in early adolescence and they become too socially isolated for too long, they are a major suicide risk. Now let's do the contrast again. In late adolescence, during the journey of soul initiation, any competent guide, not therapist, guide, soul initiation guide would say, you need to withdraw from your everyday social life as much as possible for some number of months because the social world will and your social identity is just going to get in the way. And so a competent guide to soul initiation will tell a person who's prepared, social isolation is a really good idea. Well, if you're a guide of soul initiation and you say that to someone and they're actually in early adolescence, you could be leading to their death by suicide. Can you see how important this distinction is and how different the journey of soul initiation is from doing our emotional, our foundational emotional healing work yeah, and our development of our social and vocational life. One, one last way to make this distinction is a person gets moved into the cocoon stage by mystery after they've succeeded in their social and vocational life, after they've said, they could have honestly said, the life I'm living is, is an absolutely authentic life. I love my work. I love my primary relationship, if I have one. I love my social circle. This is great. That's when mystery strikes and says, fantastic. <laughs> now that's all over. Okay? okay? So you don't enter the cocoon when your life is a complete mess and you feel like a fraud and you have no idea who you are. Yeah, okay. That's not when it happens. Well, that sounds like the military. That sounds like that moment after the military. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, well, gosh, you know, sounds like I'm I'm ripe for that for that for that still to come. That's that's funny. And terrifying and wonderful yeah. all, all in the same do, uh, yeah. do you want to uh, finish sharing the the stages of the descent to soul yes we use the word phase i mean you could use the word stage but we use the word phase because we're not talking about life stages we're talking about something that happens within a single life stage namely late adolescence or the cocoon 
And uh, it's the Descent to Soul, Spiritual Adventure, has five phases. Um, so we said the first phase is preparation, talked about it. Second phase is dissolution, where our identity dissolves. And not only does our, our identity, our current social and vocational identity dissolve, but our belief that we could ever again define ourselves in any primary way in terms of a social role or a vocation, that that whole way of coming to know ourselves is, is over. It's, it's that mm -hmm. different and profound. Um, the third stage, uh, sorry, phase is soul encounter. And this is when we have a vision or a revelation or a deep insight that shows, that points towards the unique ecological niche we were born to take in our adult and elder life, a true adult life. So for the caterpillar, what happens in the cocoon, they're already soup. And then it turns out there are these cells that they've always had in their body that biologists call imaginal cells. And imaginal here is actually a biological term that refers to the imago, which is the word biologists use for the adult of the, those species. So a butterfly or a moth is the imago. Well, these imaginal cells in the caterpillar has, have been imagining uh, flight from the beginning of this caterpillar. And the, these imaginal cells wake up in this third phase. And they begin, well, let's just say that. They just wake up. And the, you might say this, the caterpillar consciousness gets this image or vision of flight. And it has this deep longing and attraction to this idea of flight. After it had had, you know, all this time as a earth crawling caterpillar. So for us humans, soul initiation is that moment when we have our vision or a revelation of our adult form, which is to say our adult ego, which is to say the um, unique ecological niche we were born to take in this lifetime. But the way we that appears to our consciousness is in terms of a metaphor. And so we call the identity or that we uh, glimpse in the soul encounter experience as a mythopoetic identity. It's, it uses um, symbol, myth, archetype, dream images, and so forth to convey to us what our adult ego form is. So I've had several soul encounters in my life, but my, the first one is always the most profound one for everybody. And my first one was at, on my fourth day of my first vision fast, in which um, it's a long story, incredibly briefly, the, um, I had a conversation with a spruce tree that had become a Zen monk by the fourth day. And um, it introduced me to a butterfly, that, a literal physical butterfly that flew um, towards me and brushed the left side of my face as it went by. And I heard in English, the butterfly saying, cocoon weaver. <clears throat> so this was, um, I had no idea what happened to me in the moment, but um, this idea of weaving cocoons, it I became, became clear to me, this was an image, my, my first mythopoetic image that would help me understand what I was born to do. But I want to emphasize here that a soul encounter is not primarily information. It's not like you get, I got this information, okay, Bill, what you're, you need to go out into the world and weave cocoons whatever that means. Like the tablets, you don't come back with tablets with written written text on them. Yeah. Well, I had some written text, but yeah. But the 
what a soul encounter primarily does is like being struck by lightning. And it starts this um, alchemical process in which our egos start getting shapeshifted. And that's the fourth phase. The fourth phase I call metamorphosis. And that's when the soul encounter, the vision, starts doing its work on our ego. And it takes, for most people, several months where the adolescent ego is refashioned, reshaped into an adult ego. Just like for the caterpillar, it takes a while to go from caterpillar soup to a butterfly body. And those imaginal cells turn out to be architects and they can take the recyclable materials of caterpillar of a former caterpillar and turn it into this completely different creature with wings. That's phase four, metamorphosis. And then the fifth phase for the caterpillar is when the cocoon breaks open or the butterfly or moth breaks out of the cocoon or the chrysalis and it can't fly yet. Hmm. Its wings are so new, it can't fly. So it just sits on a branch where the cocoon had been And it has to pump fluid through those new wings. And then it has to slowly start to flap them and learn how to flap wings. And only then can it fly. So the fifth phase for humans we call enactment. When uh, a person who's gone through, their ego has gone through a metamorphosis, begins to show up in the world as their mythopoetic identity, but this is even before they're capable of serving anybody or bringing their gift to the world. So that's the enactment phase. And then sometime after that, a person is thrown by mystery from the cocoon into the first stage of adulthood, which I call the soul apprentice at the wellspring. And that's when we look for someone to study with, to learn a delivery system that'll be an effective way to embody their mythopoetic identity. For me, it was um, two of my teachers, Stephen Foster and Meredith Little of the School of Lost Borders in California, who had been for some years reintroducing the pan-cultural vision fast to the Western world. And I recognized that a vision, vision fast could be a way for me to help people weave cocoons of transformation for themselves from adolescence to adulthood. So I studied with Stephen and Meredith for a number of years, and that's that was my early adulthood time. Boy, it really is just so, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but ant- antithetical to our Western culture's drive for us to get out there and make your make your money, yes. make your mark. Yes. Do you Are you hopeful for us collectively, Bill, for humanity, for 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 mankind, humankind? I am. I am, amazingly enough. Um, but we have to, I have to start by separating the word hope from, this, from the idea of predicting success or even survival. I have no idea if we ourselves will be extinct by, before the end of the century. Many scientists are saying human extinction is likely. That's terrifying. These are sober people who are looking at the facts. And so I don't have a separate mystical insight as to whether we'll be extinct sometime this century or almost as bad, not quite, is uh, whether the possibility that all surviving humans will be in totally in survival mode. 
as at least half of humans now are in survival mode. If us privileged people in the Western world, especially us white people, we might be in survival mode too. I don't know. Or there could be that what one of my teachers, Joanna Macy, calls the great turning. That might actually succeed this century. Um, so I'm, when I talk about hope, I'm not predicting what's going to actually happen. Um, I mean, like, because you asked me, what do I have hope? And so I'm going to tell you here what gives me hope. I've come to understand, as certain others um, who've spoken about, written about hope, like Rebecca Solnit and uh, Vaclav Havel, as two, just two examples, they say um, hope comes from inside. And I have a similar view. They also say hope is something with legs. It's something that's not sitting back and hoping and predicting that someone else is going to save us. Yeah. So for me, hope comes from the soul. That if each of us are like everything else on this planet, and we're born to take a particular place in the world, to offer a particular gift to the world, then that means Gaia, if you will, or Earth, has been giving birth to humans for quite some time now who could help out, who ha whose particular gift could help us go through these immense uh, social and cultural transformations that have to happen uh, if this thousands of years old uh, human initiation journey is going to succeed. So each one of us is born with a piece that's going to help this species, our species journey. But here's the rub, Brian, that we aren't able to either know or more importantly embody a unique gift unless we go through this thing that I call the journey of soul initiation, which we find, by the way, in all healthy cultures, there's just not too many of them left on this planet. Um, but even our own Western cultures had these kinds of initiatory practices if we go back in a few thousand years. Um, so, but my point here now is that as individuals, we're not able to offer our gift to the world unless we go through this initiatory journey. But that's why I have, I have hope is because each one of us carries as a seed a gift that will make a difference in this world. And if we can end up, if it turns out that each society, each culture and subculture is able to develop their own culturally appropriate and fitting version of the journey of soul initiation, then we'll have more and more people becoming true adults and elders. Ultimately, that's what gives me hope is the soul which is nature. Well, I think that's a, a beautiful place to to conclude. I do want to ask just one final question. We'll just have one one key takeaway today. Okay. And that is essentially what is what is a practice, a simple practice or a simple step that somebody can take who might be listening to this podcast right now that they can take in the direction, at least in the direction of their own encounter with soul or their own journey of soul initiation, whether they're already on that journey or not. Like, what would you say to the average listener? Yeah, I do have a practice um, that we use very commonly in our animus immersions. And it's, um, it's deeply transformative for people, whether they're in the oasis, early adolescent stage or the cocoon stage. And by the way, one of the things it does, this practice, which I'm about to tell you, is it for people who are in early adolescence, it helps them 
address the unfinished business for middle childhood, which is the nature-oriented task of learning the enchantment of the, the wild world and becoming fully at home in that world, which is one of the biggest developmental deficits that most contemporary humans have now. Uh, it's what Richard Louv was alluding to in his wonderful book, The Last Child in the Woods. He called it nature deficit disorder. Yeah, I love that term, nature deficit disorder. I love that. Yeah, kind of tongue in cheek as, you know, like a psychological diagnosis. Okay, so this practice is, you can call it praising the other than human world. I can just about guarantee you if you take up this practice and use it ideally every day for a few months, that it will transform your life and your consciousness. And what it is, is to go out into the world. It can, you can even do this in urban places, like a city park, but really anywhere, a backyard, suburban backyard, or the, a nearby state park. The, the wilder place, the better, but maybe in general, but you can even do this in a city. And you go out, maybe you start with some deep breaths, and maybe you start with a little ceremony where you cross some threshold, like you step from a sidewalk onto... Uh, into a forest or something, and but you linger at that threshold and you remind yourself wh what 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 you're about to do and why you're going to do it, and then you wander in a place where there are natural things. Again, it could be in a city where there are birds and trees, and so on, or even gravity, which of course is natural. Um, you just open your perceptual self, your senses, and your heart, and um, you open yourself somatically and just notice what are the non-human things that you wonder about, that you have curiosity about, that catch your attention. It could be anything. It could be a piece of grass growing up through concrete. It could be a bird call. It could be the bird itself. It could be bird flight. It could be the way um, the breeze moves a rose bush or um, it could be a scent of something, but whatever it is, uh, it could be a cloud passing by, a thunder, a storm, whatever it is that catches your attention, your curiosity, your wonder. I guess curiosity and wonder are the key words here. That to let yourself take that in, that thing or that process or that place, and ask yourself what most, most touches you about it, what you notice about it that make, gets you most wondering. And then tell that thing or place out loud in your most beautiful language that you've got what you appreciate about it. Mm. And that's, of course, praising. Mm. Praise it out loud. Really, do it out loud. If there's a p other people around and you're shy, do it under your breath. Or be really brave and do it out loud and let them, other people think <laughs> you're crazy. Take the risk. Yeah. But do it out loud mm. and praise that thing. And, and, and this will open you up emotionally um, if you're really doing this, if you're really asking yourself, what, what is, what, in what way am I being moved by this natural thing or place or event and so forth? And then after that, move on to the next thing and do it for as long as you have that day. It might be only 15 minutes, maybe an hour, might be half a day if you're lucky. If you're really lucky, you put a backpack on 
and this is not only luck, but it's privilege. It's socioeconomic privilege. Sure, yeah. But you'd put your backpack on and you'd go alone, if you could do it safely, into a wilderness place for three or four days or more, only if you've got the skill and the gear to do that safely. But if you do this kind of practice as often as you can, guaranteed, whether you're in this hmm. early adolescence or late adolescence or even later, this will be a practice that will change you in profound ways. And one thing I will say, and I've said a lot of things, but another thing I will say is about I'm, I am so uh, impressed and, and grateful for all you, the countless practices that you give in your books to help facilitate these, these, these small, simple practices like this one. Bill, your books are just teeming with practice, with practical yeah. guidance and and instruction and practice. Oh, I mean, it's just, it's incredible. You know, Bill, obviously I don't know hardly anything about you personally, your personal life. I don't know how you show up in the daily ways of things, but I will say, I can say your through, just through your work, what I've seen at the Animus Institute, through your books, your writings, your your work is your your life's work is a, it's a masterwork. It is it is a masterwork, and I'm I'm, you know, I've told a few people. I don't know if I like this language, but like your your books have become my bibles. Mm. Only by which I mean they've become guides for 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 how to live a, a, a how to live life well. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, all four of my books are really meant to be field guides to um, be helping us all, including myself, become more fully human. Um, two of them are, their subtitles are field guides, but all four really are. And so where can uh, your new book, where can people find this? Anywhere books are sold. And you can find us at, um, at Animus Valley Institute um, at www.animus.org. The important thing to say about Animus is that it's A-N-I-M-A-S, not U-S. Um, so it actually comes from the Spanish word animas, which is plural for souls. We are named that because we're here in the Animus Valley in southwest Colorado. Animas.org. And Bill, I don't know how you do it, man, but uh, you, you got to figure out how to expand your programs. They've been, I've been, they've been sold out for through this pandemic. I don't know. Everyone wants to get back to nature. Everyone's they're coming to a confrontation with something, and uh, you, you have, you have beautiful maps. You have really important maps, and and I'm thrilled to help people discover your work. Uh, I'm trying to get in there myself. So uh, you're, you're, you're just, and maybe I'll be able to step in and serve the, the community as well in some way, but that's beside the point. That's just me being a bit of a fanboy right now and just telling you I'm in love with <laughs> everything that you're doing. I'm so grateful for it. Thank you so much, Brian. And uh, Bill, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today on Men This Way. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you again for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to the brilliant Bill Plotkin. Find Bill's books, events, and more information about him and his work at www.animas.org. Of course, this link and any other resources mentioned will be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash podcast. 
brianreeves.com slash men this way podcast. And if you were served by this and think others should hear it too, and yes, I think others should definitely hear this. This is such important work that Bill is up to. Please share this episode um, or just write a review so that you too can lead more men this way. And truly, you know, a lot of work goes into these uh, podcast episodes, work and money and passion and energy and time. And this is something that I, I, I give to the world. Um, uh, you don't have to pay for these episodes. Um, this is just a, a work of, of, my, of, of art from my heart and, and may, that it may serve others such as yourself. And it would mean the world to me if you would just take a moment to write a review on your podcast app. So truly, you know, your, your, your words make a difference and your words can indeed bring more men and more women for that matter. I know we have a lot of women listeners as well, but you can lead more men uh, this way if you think this work is worthy. Please do that. I would greatly appreciate it. And I read all the reviews, of course. And if you're not already a subscriber, please do subscribe. You really help this podcast out uh, when you do so. So I thank you. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired. Mm-hmm.